Acts chapter 19, we're going to pick up at verse 10 and read through the end of the chapter. It's going to be a lot to cover. We'll just be doing an overview this morning. Acts 19, verse 10, this continued by the space of two years so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons and the diseases departed from them and the evil spirits went out of them. Then certain to the vagabond Jews, exorcists took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus saying, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of one Siva, a Jew and a chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he went into Macedonia, uh, so he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. In the same time, there arose no small stir about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone in Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away much people, saying that there be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worships. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion, and having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater, and when Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, and the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. And they drew Alexander out of the 
multitude and Jews putting him forward. And Alexander beckoned with the hand and would have made his defense unto the people. But when they knew he was a Jew, all with one voice about the space of two hours cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, You men of Ephesus, what man is there that knows not how the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and the image which fell down from Jupiter? Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, you ought to be quiet and to do nothing rashly. For you have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open and there are deputies. Let them and plead one another. But if you inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. A couple of weeks ago, we took kind of a a virtual tour of the city of Ephesus noting the the wealth displayed in the many gymnasiums and public baths and lecture halls and city parks, the, the massive temple to Artemis or Diana, the, the city's massive amphitheater, and even like the, the marble sidewalks leading up to it. When the gospel came to Ephesus, if you were looking at the city from the outside, nothing much would have changed in the appearance of the city. But if we could look at it from a spiritual perspective through the eyes of the truest realities of this world, we would have seen that at that moment, Ephesus was being invaded. It had become the front line of spiritual warfare. It was the the battleground of this cosmic conflict between good versus evil, righteousness versus wickedness. Ephesus at that moment was front and center in God's campaign to free the souls of men. It is so seldom that we actually look at the world this way. Unfortunately, our worldview often ends with what we can actually see with our eyes instead of the truth of what's really happening around us. You know, in the Old Testament, back in 2 Kings chapter 6, the king of Syria launched this military campaign down against Israel. And it was clear to that king for his mission to succeed, he would have to deal with the prophet of God, Elisha, there in Israel. And so he brought his army down secretly against Elisha's home in Dothan, this little village that that sat in a valley. When the sun rose and the village was able to see, they found themselves surrounded by the Syrian army. You can almost picture Elisha's servant in that story peeking out the window blinds of the house, seeing this imminent destruction and panicking and asking Elisha, what are we going to do? You can also imagine his surprise when Elisha the prophet peeked out the blinds next to him and said confidently, don't panic, it looks like we got him outnumbered. The prophet prayed and the servant's eyes were open and his worldview changed 
dramatically. The Syrian army that was surrounding their little village was itself surrounded by an angelic army, the hillsides and mountains covered by by horses and flaming chariots. Elisha's God, Paul's God, our God is the, the Lord of hosts. He is the master of angelic armies. He is engaged in spiritual conflict and has issued us a call to arms to join that fight. And ultimately, when we look in this series at the letter that Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, seeing this city and the spiritual conflict that's described here in chapter 19 is going to be helpful context for that letter. When we get to the letter of Ephesians, we'll see Paul call on Christians to put on the whole armor of God because he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. This account that we've read in Acts 19 reveals to us the nature of that struggle. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as it comes and it changes the hearts of men, it results in repentance and faith in his name. And the only weapon capable of granting believers victory in the spiritual warfare against the the unified forces of evil is the gospel of Jesus. Long before the Apostle Paul writes the letter to the church in this city, God miraculously intervened in this city, claiming victory over, in this text, disease and demons and deception and defiance. And we're going to look at all four of those just quickly as an overview. God claims victory over disease in verses 11 and 12. God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs and, na- and, and aprons and the diseases departed from them and the evil spirits went out of them. So right off the bat, it is important to remember the book of Acts is giving us a description of what took place, but not always a prescription for us to follow. The apostles, like Paul, were granted miraculous spiritual gifts that are not part of the Spirit's gifting today. And so when some faith healer or TV evangelist uses this passage and and claims the same gifting, don't believe it. For example, Donald Trump's spiritual advisor, Paula White, offered to sell her sanctified hankies for a little over $1,000 each, promising that you get, these, you get these special prayer claws that I've touched and you are going to receive miracles and, and signs and wonders and resurrection life. No, you're going to waste a little over $1,000 because she's Paula White. She ain't the Apostle Paula. There's no indication that Paul ever tried to sell or even give away these pieces of cloth. In fact, these these handkerchiefs and aprons, when you do a word study here, are apparently sweat rags. So picture this. We know that as Paul went in and he worked in a place, he didn't 
He didn't receive money from the people he was ministering to as he proclaimed the gospel. Instead, he was a a tent maker. And as he went to work plying his trade, and he would take a cloth and wipe the sweat from his brow, those claws just starting started to disappear as people started grabbing them and took them around to sick, sick folks. This is a description of what happened. It's not a prescription for us to follow. You look again at verse 11, Luke calls them special miracles. Now all miracles are special, obviously, but Luke's using a word here to describe something unusual or extraordinary. This isn't something to be expected by us today. Any more than you would expect someone, you know, coming and touching the hem of the preacher's clothes is going to heal them like the woman with the issue of blood touching the the hem of Jesus's robe. Or, you know, in Acts 5, there were people who were healed as Peter walked and his shadow passed over them. Look, my shadow can probably give you ample shade, but that's about all it can do. The argument made by modern so-called miracle workers is invariably, well, God is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so as we see God working these miracles through people all throughout scripture, we should expect that God's the same and he's doing those things today. But think about what you see in scripture. Miracles performed by the hands of men are mostly confined to three specific times in history. Times that lasted somewhere around 70 to 80 years. So, for example, these are the times. Moses and Joshua saw miraculous events to confirm the message of God that came through them. The prophets, Elijah and Elisha, perform miracles to confirm the message of God that came through them. Jesus and the apostles perform miracles to confirm the message of God that came through them. The times that the Lord uses miraculous gifts to confirm his message are exceedingly rare and always brief. Miraculous gifts like this are given by God at the time he sends new messengers and those gifts confirm the message and the message is what's important. In this case, the apostle Paul is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in the city of Ephesus and these miraculous gifts were a confirmation of that message. But now, in our day, the New Testament is complete and the word of God is sufficient. You don't need me to perform miracles in order to confirm the message. The message is confirmed. It's revealed in the word that you have in your hands this morning as we study it. It's that word. It's that word that this passage is advocating for, which is why I wanted to start our reading in verse 10 instead of just kind of picking up the story in verse 11. In verse 10, both the Jews and the Greeks heard the word of the Lord Jesus. And as an expansion of that word, here are these other things that are happening. Look down at verse 20. The word of God grew mightily and prevailed. There seemed to be an understanding that as God showed power over disease, he claims victory over disease, 
that that visible power confirmed, it substantiated the invisible power of God over the diseases of our heart. You know, it's one thing to be confirmed to be cured of some physical infirmity through a, a piece of cloth that happened to touch the Apostle Paul's sweaty forehead. But the greatest miracle is to have your soul cleansed from the disease of sin by coming in contact with the same Savior that Paul had come in contact with. God claimed victory over disease for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus. Second, we see in this text, God claims victory over demons in verses 13 through 17. When it comes to demons, evil spirits, modern man usually falls into one of two errors. Either we want to ignore it completely as being fairy tales, or on the other extreme, we believe in them and become absolutely preoccupied with their existence. As Christians, we don't have the luxury of pretending that demons, that evil spirits, don't exist. The Bible plainly depicts them as fallen angels who work in the world to oppose God and oppose God's people, to deceive, to to blind unbelievers to the truth of the gospel. As believers, we're warned that we have an adversary, the devil, who, who paces about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Verses 13 through 16 gives us the strange story of the seven sons of Siva. Verse 13, certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of one Siva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So here's a little background to help understand this. Luke uses the term vagabond, and we usually think of vagabond as, as um, you know, bad connotations, a vagrant. Or, but really what it means is a, a wanderer or a traveler. So there are these seven brothers, sons of a Jewish priest named Siva, who made their living as traveling spiritualists. Specifically, they claimed the ability to exercise, to cast out evil spirits. And it was common in that day for for magicians and spiritualists and other type of religious hucksters to to just borrow whatever religious incantation sounded good. And so in this case, Luke says they took upon them, in verse 13, or they assumed authority, they took upon them to call over the ones that had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus. Listen, there is power in the name of Jesus, but it is not a magical incantation to be used whenever, wherever, by whoever. As the gospel of Jesus spread and the news of, that, that Paul had, had expelled evil spirits in the name of Jesus and even the, the sweaty cloths that were used at the end of verse 12 were used to expel evil spirits, 
the news got around to these traveling exorcists and they're like, well, this seems to be getting popular. If we want to get in on the business, we got to have the same product. Let's start using the name of Jesus and just add it to the other hocus pocus that we call out when we're supposedly exercising demons. Obviously, it didn't go well. You can hear them try it at the end of verse 13. We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, I can't claim to know what kind of interaction had happened with this man before that, but at the name of Jesus, they found out that this man was genuinely demon-possessed and that demonic spirit was determined to speak. Using the voice of the possessed man, the evil spirit responds to their command with essentially the demon saying, I recognize Jesus. I've heard of Paul, but you seven guys, I have no idea who you think you are. This demon was well acquainted with who Jesus is. Jesus is, after all, It's creator against whom it is rebelled. Demons in the Gospels had even appealed to Jesus begging, don't don't torment us before the time, showing that demons know who Jesus is and they know that they are on the clock. He is going to condemn them to torment. James 2.19 even describes the demons as, well, they, they believe and tremble. This demon knows who Jesus is. This demon even knows about the Apostle Paul as Paul is on the spiritual front lines of this battle, right? He is the weapon in the Lord's hand in this war that's being waged. But these men who are presuming to use the name of Jesus like a magical incantation without even being true believers in Jesus they find out that they pick a fight that they're not ready for. It turns out that seven against one is not a fair fight. Luke says the demon-possessed man, no doubt given supernatural strength by the evil spirit, leaped on them. He attacked. And the end result of this fight is that the seven of them run out of the house through the streets of Ephesus naked and wounded and embarrassed. Now, why would this demon even leave them alive? I think because the verse 17 says it was known to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling at Ephesus. These men had tried to use the name of Jesus like a magic potion and it didn't work. So perhaps the goal of this demon was to have the name of Jesus tarnished. But you don't ever have to be worried that that could even possibly happen. God has given him a name that is above every name. So in the providence and sovereignty of God, this backfired. The opposite happened. Look at verse 17. It was known to all the Jews and the Greeks, also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Nobody gets away with playing fast and loose with the name of Jesus. This is the Son of God, the very God who gave the command, do not use my name in vain, right? Don't use my name in some empty, meaningless way. The name of God, the name of Jesus, the Son of God, is not a thing to be trifled with. 
These men learned that lesson, and we need to take a lesson here. Using the name of Jesus will not make your wrongdoing right. Speaking his name doesn't change your wickedness to virtue. And if you're doing that, if you think that by living wickedly but speaking the name of Jesus freely, that that keeps you righteous, you're making the same mistake that these seven brothers made. You're using the name of Jesus on your life like it's fairy dust. Don't think you can sprinkle the name of Jesus into your vocabulary and somehow that's going to sanctify your unrighteous behavior. This is the danger of the prosperity gospel that tells you to you know, declare the power of the name of Jesus without any regard of whether or not you've actually embraced the saving power that's found through Jesus. You need to have a genuine relationship with the person of the Son of God, not just a willingness to use his name for your own comfort and benefit. Repent of your sins. Trust him in faith. Live a life that's genuinely changed. Third in the text, we see God claims victory over deception. Look at verses 18 and 19. Many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Ephesus was well known for being the center of magic occult activities. One popular tool of the Ephesian magicians was to write down on some tiny little scroll their magical gibberish and then to sell it or to sell amulets that were supposedly powerful. Those things were known throughout history as Ephesian letters and people would buy them and sort of keep them secretly, tuck them into their clothes to ward off evil spirits. Now, I want you to look at verses 18 and 19 carefully because Luke's written in in sort of an, an open way. The verses there might be describing new believers who have seen that those those dark arts are exposed as being inferior to the name of Jesus. They've heard the gospel for the first time. They're saved and they put those things away. Or Luke could be describing in those verses the many that believed, that is, folks who had already believed and claimed faith in Jesus, but were still holding on to their spiritualist superstitions. Either way, whether newly saved or those who had already believed or or most likely, I think, both, the experience of seeing these superstitions exposed led them to confession and repentance. They confessed, verse 18 says. They showed their deeds. They divulged their practices. They exposed those secret superstitions which they had sinfully been maintaining. And they did away with them. They did away with them dramatically. They did away with them publicly. Now, obviously, not everybody in Ephesus was a magician, but apparently there was at least one accountant because Luke says somebody started keeping a tally sheet of like, what would the price be if this stuff was sold on the open market? And they came up with 50,000 pieces of silver. Almost assuredly there, those pieces of silver are a drachma, a 
uh, common wage for a day's work. So this is a staggering amount. It would take one man 160 years of labor to earn that. Or do it this way. Just take your annual wage and multiply it by 160. That's what the church at Ephesus, for the sake of the gospel, was glad to watch burn. It's a good example of what it is to live a life of sacrifice, a life that calls you to willingly let go of everything to gain a better hold of Christ. Like, I'm going to, I'm just going to assume that not many of us this morning are holding on to magical superstitions, although it's certainly possible. But I am sure that each of us are holding on to some sense of comfort that supposedly brought from the the sins in our lives don't be deceived by whatever supposed comfort those sins bring you you would be far better off with them being removed and to watch them burn than to keep them finally in the text god claims victory over defiance and it's odd to say finally when we got verses 21 to 41 still cover right But we're going to do it quickly as an overview. Back in that account of burning those Ephesian letters, the magical papers, Luke was showing us that the victory gained by the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to come at personal expense. It cost the church 50,000 pieces of silver. That kind of value is what they were willing to give up. But in verses 21 through 41, we have the account of the riots started by the Ephesian silversmiths, which tells us that we're going to face defiance when the gospel is declared and it starts to challenge others. When the gospel starts costing others, it is intolerable to them. We're introduced to a man named Demetrius in verse 24. Picture him as the, he's the head of the local silversmith trade guild. And these trade guilds were an important part of the, the economic structure in first century Ephesus. In this case, a majority of their income was derived by selling really two items, though one is described here. There was the little statues of the goddess Artemis, or Diana, and also the, the, uh, a little scale model of the temple that was dedicated to that goddess. Now, King James Version has it as Diana. The Greek word here is Artemis. You might be familiar with um, Greek and Roman mythology. The, the, the characters are the same, but they go by different names. Well, in Greek mythology, she's Artemis. In Roman mythology, she's Diana. Right? But there was this massive temple to Artemis or temple to Diana outside of the city, and it sort of loomed over the city. The chapter progresses showing the gospel is taking a hold at Ephesus, and as faith in Jesus grew, it started to dent the pocketbooks of the silversmith guild because Christians obviously aren't going to buy their little statues and scale models of the temple. The sort of the tourism and sales that happened at the, the temple of Artemis was so busy with people that 
actually that temple became like the, the main banking center for the entire province of Asia. John MacArthur summarized this by saying that Demetrius appeals to their pocketbooks, to their piety, and to their patriotism. Listen to verses 24 through 27. A certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for, for Diana, made no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth, Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worships. Now, what's the real issue there? Well, the real issue is their pocketbook, right? If those gods that you make with hands aren't gods at all, then the silversmiths are going to have to find a new source of income. But Demetrius shrewdly folds in like the, the piety and the patriotism argument as well, right? Well, this is our city's claim to fame. This is what we, we're known for. If you're good citizens of Ephesus, you're not going to let these outsiders besmirch the name of our great goddess Diana, who everyone should worship. And so the riot begins, and as the riot begins, it's not to the complaints of, hey, we're losing money over here. It's the angry shouts of verse 28, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And so much like today, the actual motivation of evil people is disguised as religious and patriotic fervor. And also much like today, we see people getting irrationally irate and, and misbehaving senselessly. When the silversmiths begin their demonstration, the rest of the city has no idea what's happening. Verse 29, the whole city was filled with confusion. Nobody, at least very few people, had any idea what was going on. And yet, the riot gained speed. This is typical mob mentality. People, as individuals, are sinfully depraved creatures, but people, when you put them into groups of sinfully depraved creatures, know almost no bounds of bad behavior as we encourage and even excuse all sorts of misconduct. Most people had no idea what was going on or what fueled the riot, neither did they really care. The silversmiths knew what was going on. They knew the cause, and apparently they looked for Paul but couldn't find him. And instead, in verse 29, they ended up with two of his companions named Gaius and Aristarchus. And the riot continues down that main road we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the Arcadian Way, and it leads to that big amphitheater on the east side of the city. When Paul hears what's going on and that, that the mob has Gaius and Aristarchus, he is ready to charge headlong into that amphitheater by himself in verse 30, but he is physically restrained by some other disciples. Meanwhile, in verse 31, some government officials who, who were either Christians or sympathetic to Christians, they're described as friends of Paul, send a message saying, Paul, 
do not go into the amphitheater. For crying out loud, somebody keep Paul from going into the amphitheater. Meanwhile, the riot grows and still nobody knows why. Verse 32, some people are saying one thing, some are, are saying another. The whole crowds are confused. The majority has no idea what this is all about. And so how do you quell an angry mob that doesn't even know what it is that they're angry about? Well, God intervenes in this riot using a man who essentially you can think of him as the mayor of Ephesus. He's described as the the town clerk, but he's the one responsible for for calling city meetings, right? Calling citizens to the amphitheater and for answering to Rome for for the conduct of the city. Verse 35 says, when the town clerk had appeased the people, right? He had quieted them. He said, You men of Ephesus, what man is there that knows not how the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches, and the word there in Greek, by the way, is temples, nor yet blasphemers of your goddess, Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open. There are deputies. Let them plead one another, right? Let's do this in some sort of legal, reasonable, orderly way. In this confusion, this chaos, God gives clarity to the town clerk to know the cause of the riot. Now, don't think of this as like this mayor is a good guy. He's not. Mr. Good Guy. He's still a pagan idol worshiper. He has no regard for the true God. But he does say to the people, everybody knows that Diana is the real goddess. It can't be spoken against her. In other words, it's undeniable, which as a matter of fact is not technically true because Paul would deny it. He has been out there denying it, which is what causes the silversmiths their issue. But remember, the crowd as a whole has no idea why they're there. He says Gaius and Aristarchus are not causing trouble for the temple of Diana. They haven't stolen silver or gold. They haven't burned it down. They've not been spray painting mean graffiti on the side of the building or anything. Essentially, he's saying, look, Christians are are harmless. They aren't guilty of anything against the law. Who is guilty of something against the law, uh, potentially, is this angry city-wide rioting mob. He notes in verse 40, let me give you verse 40 in the English Standard Version, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause we can give to justify this commotion. All the people involved in this riot, he says, look, you're potentially in a lot of trouble. (laughs) The Roman Empire does not take kindly to angry mobs filling its city, unable to explain their actions. And with that warning, the town clerk manages to quell the rioters. He is, he is God's tool in order to protect Paul and more, more directly Gaius and Aristarchus. So when we look at Acts 19, because remember, this is a study of Ephesians. <laughs> when we look at Acts 19, For the purpose of our study of Ephesians, when the Apostle Paul 
writes to the church in this city and says, we're not at war. remember, we're not at war against flesh and blood, but against, uh, in a spiritual battle against wickedness, that is not new information to the church at Ephesus. They lived through this chapter, right? They'd seen the miraculous healing that glorified the gospel of Jesus Christ. They'd, they'd watched those seven brothers uh, running naked and wounded through the streets. They'd, they'd seen the bonfire of those occult papers. Many of them had thrown their own superstitions into that fire and watched them burn. This angry chant of great is Diana of the Ephesians was still an echo in their memory when Paul writes this letter. They knew the truth. They knew that the Lord Jesus of the Ephesian church is the only one that's worthy to be called great. The spiritual battlefield that's being described in Acts 19 had put them into combat with supernatural forces of evil with their own superstitious hearts and also with the superficial religion of a wicked society. What Paul's letter is going to do when he writes it is to remind them that they have to stay in that fight. It's the church's job to stay in that fight. Now, this is going to bring an end to Paul's stay in Ephesus. It has lasted about three years. You can see in chapter 20, verse 1, that when the uproar is over, Paul says his farewells and departs to Macedonia. However, I want to stress that the riot did not cause Paul to leave Ephesus. He was already ready to go. Look uh, in chapter 19, verses 21 and 22, right? After these things, after the burning of the magic books, Paul purposed in the spirit that when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also go to Rome. And so he sent Timothy and Erastus to uh, Achaia. He's just doing what he had already purposed in his spirit to do. The church at Ephesus will not be seeing the Apostle Paul again. However, he will pass fairly close by on the return trip to Jerusalem that he's talking about here. He's going to pass close by. And in Acts 20, he calls the the pastors of the church at Ephesus to meet him on that journey Uh, You know, they actually come onto the boat with them and he speaks to them one final time and Lord willing, we'll look at that meeting next time and then we'll be ready to jump right into the letter to the Ephesians.